Hi and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast where designers learn about business. This is a new format of the podcast called Business Design Jam and I explain later in the conversation itself what this format is about. So um, let me just introduce the guest. So the guest is uh, David Schmidt, a fellow business designer who I met here in Berlin. And um, that's basically it in the intro. Let's just jump right into the introduction uh, into the conversation because we explain everything there. Hey everyone, this is a new format of Beyond Users podcast called Business Design Jam. So what me and David are going to do today is basically each talk to three examples of uh, nice business design examples, which are basically really cool case studies, companies we like, and we're going to talk about what is interesting in them and what we can learn as designers to actually also then uh, bring to our projects or, or just to appear smart in a client meetings or <laughs> any team meetings. Right, David? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So what we're going to do is each go through one example, discuss it. And um, yeah, as I said, uh, this is actually an experiment. Let us know on Twitter at Beyond User or Instagram or whatever, anywhere, <laughs> how you like it or if you like it at all. So um, David, do you want to go first with your example? Yeah, perfect. Go ahead. So my first example is actually a meta business model. So I will talk about company builders, especially um, corporate company builders. So as we know, um, for corporates, innovation is hard. So um, it's very difficult to come up with a new business model or with new business when you have actually your operations running. So what you see a lot of times is what um, we call innovation theater. So something is happening at corporates. They're doing stuff, but it's not you can't really see the outcome. And um, digitalization and the way to be truly innovative is something they are really looking after to really looking after um, to do. So company builder or corporate company builder can be a way to do that. So that is you have a company builder, so um, an organization that builds companies professionally or builds startups, and they cooperate with an corporate. So the company builder brings in the people, the expertise, the customer-centric view and also the way to grow and scale a business and the corporate bring in the market expertise and their customers. Yeah, we actually see this popping up like all over the place, right? Design agencies trying to play their VC funds also, I think reorganizing to, to be kind of also company builders instead of, just, instead of just injecting money. But like what is your favorite example maybe then? So um, here in Berlin, we have several ones. So for example, we have the old Rocket Internet, which um, has its, one of its um, ventures is being Zalando, or we have Finleap and Adventure. So Finleap is a corporate builder that is especially in the fintech space. So they cooperate with banks or insurers and um, build up new business models together with them. Okay, cool. What do you like about this model particularly? Like, What's so exciting about it for you? Um, so I think it brings together first um, the innovation of a startup. So you have the freedom and you can really go into the market and see what does the customer need and how can I build it fast. But you have an extra level to that that says, okay, and there's a corporate with a legacy, with a customer base, and especially with assets. With assets. 
So you can combine your innovative thinking and your startup with assets of an that have been building up over hundreds, maybe uh, tens of years, maybe hundreds of years. For example, they have a huge customer base or they have a e deep expertise and mm -hmm. you will leverage these assets and have a far bigger impact than what you have if you just start from zero. Got it. Okay. But how do you use that? I mean, who is this kind of approach useful for? Like if I am working in uh, in an agency, uh, can I use this, any of the learnings from here? Or is it more just for corporates who are looking for the right partner? Um, so I think there are agencies who... Uh, to some extent are shifting towards that model saying, okay, we've been working together with corporate partners. We built projects. Then we saw them die because of internal battles. So what can we do? And then they have the idea of, okay, let's get it um, into a separate entity. So to protect it in some way. And then what you need is people who are really capable of building up companies. And that's sometimes agencies usually have a, bit different focus so you have to make sure that you have the people who are able to do this usually they come from a startup or entrepreneurial background themselves one more thing or uh, one thing that's um that's a challenge here is the two different speeds within the corporate and a startup world yeah, yeah. so the corporate has a lot of um long decision making they make um they are used to very strict processes and on the other side you have a startup where everything changes all the time and a company builder in that way has to uh, work as some kind of transmission belt to translate the two um two speeds so to make yeah. sure that none of them so that they um can cooperate and none of them get lost in the way. So stakeholder management and somehow communicating well about what's happening is very important. Yeah, I remember this analogy we used to uh, talk about with corporates. It's like you are a big tanker and this startup you're building is more like a speedboat. You know, And you can run over your speedboat if you go the wrong way. And it's really important that you know how to handle the boat. To stay in this analogy, so it can happen that the speedboat goes so far ahead that it gets <laughs> it uh, starts to run out of resources and then get lost. So you still have to somehow stay around to also change the direction of the tanker. Yeah. How do you do that then? Um, I think with some experience... <laughs> great <laughs> so <answer>. complex <laughs> i think it's complex to do that yeah yeah it's not easy perfect anything to add here no i think that's that's my first example that's your first okay then let's look at my first which is uh wenmoff plus so um ceo of this company wenmoff is actually was also guest on this podcast and we discussed their uh, change of a business model. So first of all, what Venmoff is, it's basically an Amsterdam-based uh, uh, bike manufacturer, and they've been creating these really nice, cool-looking bikes for the last 10 years. And uh, this year, in April, they decided to uh, offer a subscription service. And with that, basically, they are no longer just selling the bikes. I mean, you can still buy the bike, but they are offering also a subscription where you pay a key fee, which is like 100 bucks, 
and then you pay 20 or 23 depending on the, what bike you t- uh, take uh, per month like a subscription right so bike is theirs but you can use it uh, as if it's yours you know um, which I think is kind of competing with this bike sharing services like uh, here in Berlin we have Mobike mm-hmm. Nextbike mm-hmm. yep. etc and I'm not a big fan of them because they're never there when you need them they're really slow and they're actually quite expensive. I actually end up paying less. I actually also am a subscriber to Venmoff Plus, <laughs> and I like it a lot. And uh, I end up paying less this way than having uh, uh, like a mobile subscription or whatever. And what I like about it from the business design perspective is that actually they, this company, have the guts to actually try out what everybody's talking about. Everybody's talking about moving, you know, into the uh, this economy where people are gonna be subscribing to things instead of owning them and um i remember asking uh, uh taco the ceo why they decided to do it and he said like we always wanted to try out new things but from the business perspective it's a risky move you know because instead of getting all the money up front which is around let's say thousand euros now you are kind of making yeah you're risking that you're not gonna get that money you know i could just be, just be subscribed for five months and then you're gonna get back like a beaten up bike so I think what they're doing here is trying to go for the volume, through volume, you know, having many more people buy, making basically their bikes more accessible, and uh, through that trying to make up on on the volume for the profit. So what they also will need is cash. So they have to finance the bikes in the first place. So when they deliver them to you, that's probably not covered by the hundred euros bike fee, but they still yeah. have to put something on top, and then like they're basically giving you a loan on your bike yeah exactly and there is no contract you need to sign so i'm really, really? curious yeah exactly so you, i can cancel any time so i could just use it for a month and actually there's also a 30-day money back guarantee so after 30 days you can give it back um so um it, it's a really interesting example and experiment i think they're running and i hope it works out for them i'm not yeah go ahead do you already have um some ideas how it's how it's working for them so do they already have data on on how the usage is how the acceptance rate things like that no unfortunately not i spoke with him uh shortly after they uh introduced it okay uh or even before that it was official that they're gonna do it but it wasn't there yet so i don't have any data um but yeah Let's see. I mean, another thing that I like from the business design perspective also here is the fact that it's a closed system. Uh, usually bikes are, I mean, when we talk about closed system, it means they do all the whole bike, except for, I think, the uh, the gears, uh, which means that whatever you want to uh, switch, um, you need to go back to their... Um, workshops uh, exactly workshops thanks so what this means on one side it's it's great because it's a better experience and also the quality is higher but on the other hand it's sometimes less convenient you know they have this model where they send you i mean what you can do is in in the app you can kind of explain what your problem is and if you're remote they can send you the part and then you can do it yourself kind of uh, install it but it's not the same but the advantage of this is also that if somebody steals your bike 
eventually they're gonna have to bring it back to the shop <laughs> and this is actually what happened i actually talk also talked about it in the podcast is that one guy stole uh, an electric bike and their electric bike also basically looks the same as the normal one and the guy brought it in and didn't know it was electric and like, <laughs> <laughs> they figure out it's stolen and then hey did you know you actually have an electric bike so that was a fun uh, uh fun thing so there is a lot also you know how should should my product be closed system or open system? I think it's a really interesting topic that uh, each designer should be asking themselves when designing a product. Like, is it better to create something that we com- own completely or go open like, you know, Google has done? So I think you, if you look at it from the customer perspective, at once you would think if you're um, like sharing the bike or renting the bike that you have less less problems with it or you everything is covered so yeah. uh, re, they i think the repairs maintenance yeah. is covered Tap so insurance i forgot to mention that yeah yeah and then but on the other hand there's still some new new things coming up like the workshops are not not there yet so yeah. i think on both sides you have some advantages and some disadvantages exactly and that's for me it's a definition of a good trade off for business you know you need to have when you make a certain decision, if it's easy and somebody else can copy it, then it's probably not a good strategy. It needs to be a trade-off. Uh, so it's a risky move, but business is a risky endeavor at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, let's see. I'm really curious. I hope they survive because otherwise they're going <laughs> to want my bike back. Uh, on, the other, <laughs> on the other hand, one of the bike sharing services in Berlin crashed and then they were selling off the bikes very cheaply like all of really? them. Really? Hmm? <laughs> okay <laughs> so maybe you're lucky and nobody <laughs> yeah but then somebody still needs to maintain the bike yeah. so okay, good. that's true yeah, i forgot to mention that this is the last point is yeah for this 20 bucks 23 bucks per month also uh, it covers the maintenance uh and theft insurance right so if somebody steals the bike i can just report it stolen in the app and then they track it down or after two weeks i get a new one so that's a big plus as well you know because it's their bike they're going to be more motivated to track it down and I guess also this brings us to the topic of circular economy, where by that they are also incentivized to create a better, um, to use better materials to be able to refurbish the bike, which is good for the environment. I once talked to an engineer um, and asked him about what, how he was looking at autonomous bikes and like when the bikes will, uh, autonomous cars, sorry, when the cars will not be owned by the people anymore, but by one for example, by Uber, if Uber owns all the cars because they're autonomous and driving around. And he said, that will be such a great time because then we can actually build cars that last. So <laughs> now we build um, trucks that are just working machines. They they run for hundreds of kilometers and yeah. cars are basically built to break down at some yeah, point so yeah. that people buy new cars. Yeah, exactly. I, I love this idea of circular economy. So hope more of that comes up. Cool. That's it in uh, my first uh, example or case study. What's your next? I will go next with WeChat as an example of an ecosystem. So um, ecosystems and platforms are, look like the business models of the future. So all the big tech firms are trying to build ecosystems or they already have ecosystems to catch, to catch their customers. Um, WeChat is... You could see it as the WhatsApp of China, but it's a lot more. So um, while WhatsApp has around uh, 1.5 billion users, 
WeChat has one bill, more than one billion users, and that's only in China. Mm-hmm. And they're, um, I think of them as what could be if WhatsApp and Facebook were developing further. So you don't, you not only have in there a messaging service, but you also have something that's similar to Twitter or a newsfeed, and you have a lot of um, services inside inside WeChat. So you can pay your utilities, you can um, pay for public services, you can pay offline. So payment is a big thing, and you have third parties integrated. So they also have a bike sharing service in there. Ride hailing can be done over WeChat, of course, things <laughs> like that. Um, and what I think is one of the great facilitators for that is the payment. So you have payment in there. So if there's no um, cut in the customer journey, if you do something on the platform, there's a natural way to also pay for it. So if third parties offer their service on WeChat, they can also get, get paid. And the second thing are mini programs. So there are, like kind of apps inside WeChat that Mm -hmm. makes it into a second layer of operating system kind of. So instead of the app store, you use the WeChat mini programs. So you basically never leave WeChat anymore. So all the data (laughs) is in there, all your interactions are there. So they have very good information about you and can personalize their offering to you. This reminds me of... um topic the business design topic which is basically that it's always cheaper to find a new product for the existing customer than to find the new customer you know Mm -hmm. once you have Mm -hmm. customers it's better to be creating new products for them than to be just looking for new ones and i think amazon is also doing the same like they kind of build on this convenience hey you have our credit your credit card saved with us um it's convenient if you buy with us even if it's a little bit more expensive uh, and it's kind of building on top of that. But the hard part is uh, is kind of how do you become that player? Yeah, because everybody's trying to do it. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's also the problem of platforms. So you have to build demand at supply side at the same time. And I think with WeChat, it was in the beginning the messaging service. So they had um, a messaging service before QQ Chat where they already had a lot of people on. And then they built WeChat on that, which was basically the standard messaging service, which you could compare to WhatsApp. So now WhatsApp has a lot of customers. I think also when Facebook acquired WhatsApp, they were um, looking at, okay, what's the user base? How much money we could potentially make at some point without really having a business model yet? Um, so I think this messaging was the key thing to um, bring the users on there. You know what's interesting to me is that this model seems to be working great in uh, uh, for WeChat, but then I think Facebook Messenger has tried to do the same thing, but kind of failed at least from at least from my perspective. You know, they were everybody talked about Facebook bots a few <laughs> months or one year back, but now it kind of slowed down. I've never used Facebook Messenger to pay for anything, but there was kind of push for do it. So. You know, like, I'm just curious, how do you, it's tough, you know, it's tough to create this platform and to get get the trust. Yeah, trust is one thing. I think also with the bots, they were, I think the technology was not yet ready. So to still, to get in, to get a natural interaction going, it didn't work out. I think it was like kind of hype and now we are in the, 
in the phase where we actually soon soon we're going to see bots that are actually going to work but trust i think is um is a thing and also the a kind of social acceptance for certain behavior so mm. i think in germany for example people are really wanting to have cash so it's even difficult for <laughs> them to pay electronically and then doing this in 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 an in a messaging service i think is another step and i guess in china it was it was more accepted or people were more open yeah. to that i think it's very cultural as well i don't see this happening in germany anytime soon like <laughs> I, i first want to be able to pay with my credit card when i go to the restaurant and i don't expect the messenger app to do that yet yeah so also one way when they introduced it so there in china there's a tradition of um at Chinese New Year to hand out red envelopes with money in them as presents. So to, you give them to uh -huh. your friends, to your family, yeah. also to your colleagues. And um, WeChat made a big promotion that you could send around ad red envelopes inside the inside the chat. So you digitally, send digitally. Yeah. So you go into your chat group with your friends and you'd say, okay, I want to send 50 yuan to, who, to everybody and who opens first gets the biggest amount and then the next it was kind of a lucky draw <laughs> and that worked very well for them and they also subsidized it put some put some money money nice. in there so that it was more money coming out so it was also a very big effort to push it into the market that was yeah. something um in germany there was an effort by the german banks to put push pay direct into the market i don't know if you have heard of pay direct no It's, yeah okay <laughs> it's a german answer to paypal which never really took off uh -huh, okay. so um even if you have a big player behind it so they have to several things have to come together i think you need a big player behind it you have to um have to have the technology right and you really want to have to want to make that push to mm. bring it to customers so what's the big uh, like takeaway from here? Is it like we should be building uh, platform businesses or is it like if you want to build a platform business, uh, copy WeChat or like what's your main takeaway here? Um, my one takeaway is to look at places other than Silicon Valley for innovation. So I think China is a great place to look and also to see things that are not yet in uh, in our with us but will come in the future and for um if you build your ecosystem i think it's also watch out for partners that can work together with you so wechat got big because they have this open it to third parties mm -hmm. so they had other people create content and create apps that made it even more attractive for their customers mm. But I really like the point of looking for uh, inspiration also uh, in, in China. So maybe we can have one business design jam, jam like China uh, edition <laughs> or Asia edition. And yeah, just let's, let's go that. Beijing. <laughs> let's go to Beijing for that. Huh? Yeah, that would be nice. Okay, cool. Um, so the next example I have is actually Light Phone uh, or Light Phone 2. So uh, for those who don't know, uh, it's basically like a dumb phone, right? <laughs> Or without, the way they talk about it is basically a phone that actually respects you, <laughs> that was designed to be used as little as possible. So what it basically is, is a phone that has very limited features. It kind of just tries to focus on the things that phones should do and 
um, it kind of goes kind of um, against all this mania with everybody being addicted to their phones, using it all the time. So this phone, the Lightphone, actually doesn't have any social media, doesn't have web browsing. It's just very simple. It's just phones. Uh, I think it's a messaging, messaging service uh, and a few other things like an alarm clock or something like that. And for me, it's a really nice example of something called Blue Ocean Strategy. So for those who don't know what it is, it's basically uh, Red Ocean. It's um, competing in existing markets. And the reason why it's called Red is because it's very bloody, right? There's a lot of blood because people, or co- people companies fight. And the Red, sorry, in the Blue Ocean is uncontested market where you're creating a uh, new space. And uh, I think with this move, Lightphone is actually kind of creating a new market, uh, in uncontested space um, by having a really completely different value proposition and also a product. Uh, so one thing also Blue Ocean is, is a combination of a low-cost strategy with differentiation. So I think their low-cost comes from the fact that they're using really basic... So they don't have... It, it has uh, This phone has much fewer features than the smartphone. Right, but at the same time, at the same time, it's so differentiated with its brand because it really looks really cool. So for all of those who haven't seen how it looks, just head to I think it's called Lightphone.com or something like that. Let me check. But basically, you can see that actually their um, brand is so strong that they actually it makes it still desirable. You know, like even if you don't have the newest iPhone, you still have something you can talk about if you take your phone on the table when you go to the lunch. Uh, so um, for me, it's a really uh, nice example of yeah, Blue Ocean. Where do they put themselves in point of pricing compared to the iPhone? That's a good question. And that's also what I like from the business perspective. It's it's not cheap, you know. Even though it's a phone that does so few things, it still costs, it's going to cost $400 when it comes out. Um, so currently it runs for $300, but it's a pre-order. Uh, they have an Indiegogo um, campaign Uh, where you can uh, pre-order. But also the nice thing about this campaign is you can choose what features they're going to have in it. So there are a few features which they're still not sure if they're going to do or not. And if you buy in or basically pre-order, then you can help them decide. So some of these may be things that they're still kind of um, not sure if they're going to be in it or not. Like, you know, should they have directions? I think this is Google Maps. Then the ride sharing. Should should you be able to listen to the music? Uh, Weather voice command, calculator, dictionary. So this is this is kind of in the maybe section where you can still kind of affect if you buy pre-order and kind of help vote. But what's definitely not going to be there is social media, advertising, email, news, stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think Indiegogo is also a good way of marketing a product before you've even done it. So you can also get and you can already get the customer demand or see if somebody actually likes your product before you have to go into production. So it's kind of selling an idea to people and find out if they like the idea. Yeah. I think one thing um, many entrepreneurs do wrong is they think if they put their product on Indiegogo or Kickstarter, people are going to learn about it. I think it's it's almost... I, I see Kickstarter almost the same as having your own website where you collect pre-orders maybe there is a little bit more trust on kickstarter but still you have to do a lot of advertising and marketing i know a few friends who have done successful kickstarter campaigns and there was a lot of work actually half a year just for marketing 
because that's what it is yep. you know like yep. you're testing the thing with an idea and you have to then build an email list to pr it's not like you're just gonna show up there and get but yeah it's a great ex- great example of pre-testing your um uh yeah if, if people want to pay for it basically the viability part yeah so what i also like is the idea of just putting more features on something doesn't make it better yes so in general i think there is a curve so you can put feature 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 and exactly. you improve the utility but at some point if you put even more features or make a thing more complex the utility or the value for the customer goes down again and I, I think I just just today I was reading this article from Harvard Business Review called there was something around feature fatigue oh, mm-hmm. and it was from year 2006 <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so I think there was this problem even back then yeah and I totally agree I think a lot of products are just too complicated they can save the world but then you can't use them because you don't know how to use them yeah yeah so what can we take away from the light phone for us yeah so i mean the main takeaway is blue ocean strategy is a great strategy for creating new categories um so for anyone who has never heard of this is i should definitely i definitely recommend to look at a book blue ocean shift and um so you can combine the low cost which is basically having something that's cheaper to produce with still making it more premium or looking more premium so it doesn't have to be full of features to appear premium and to deserve a higher price. There can be a combination of the two if you do it, if you do it right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of the main takeaway for me. Uh, and there is just a huge value in creating, finding these uncontested spaces, right? So not trying to compete uh, in existing marketplace, but really trying to create something new. And I think a lot of designers... And also entrepreneurs are just more, when they think about innovation, they're more like just thinking about new features. Hey, we're going to have this feature or this this is going to be our differentiator. But then really ask yourself, like, how hard is it going to be for somebody to copy this? Because what Blue Ocean does really well, it, it's a trade-off. iPhone cannot be light phone. It just can't, right? It's a trade-off. You can either be uh, light phone or... Basically, now you know. I'm even talking about iPhone as as a category now, which proves that they have found their space. But you really have to choose one or the other. It's a trade-off, and that's what a good strategy does. And so, blue, good blue ocean is also uh, a good trade-off. That's it. Perfect. That's um, fits very well to my next example, which is also uncontested markets. So I will talk about Sandman Travel. So um, if you grow your If you want to grow your business, you can two ways to look at it is either to grow um, with your current customers and make it bigger or look out for new customers. And if you find new customers that even your competition is not looking at, that can be a new space um, for for growth. So what is Sunderman Travels? Um, they provide tours in a lot of European cities. So they have st- tours that start daily. You don't have to register with them. But you just go there and they show you around. They're um, they're quite entertaining. So the tour guides are um, mostly international, telling you about the city, and they are totally tip based. So you don't you don't have to you don't pay a fee, but at the end of the tour you pay as much as you um, as you want. They usually give you an idea of how much it should be between maybe ten to fifteen euros, but. Um, 
it's very different from a traditional tour where you have to look up a tour provider first, uh, call, call them up, ask them when you can do the tour and then you have a prearranged fee. You can just show up and uh, join them. Um, the Why is this an uncontested market? I think the people that come to these tours are people that wouldn't um, book a tour on their own. So these people are... Um, backpackers or individuals or people who travel on a budget and they would never spend the money to um, for, for a private guide, but they like to have a tour around the city and come to these tours because it's so easy to join and also um, looks affordable. Mm. So these tour guides, they're not employed by the company, right? Exactly. So the company... Um, does the marketing and the organization, but the tour guides are all self-employed. Yeah. So they're running the tours on their own. Uh, on their own, they also run other tours, so they can use these tours to upsell their um, their own tours. But in general, they are partners of Sunderman. Yeah, what I see in this example as a really interesting um, part of the whole business model is this decision which you always have: like, should I do something myself? Or should I outsource it or find a partner, right? In this case, usually when you think about a, a tour guide company, you have these tour guides employed by the company, right? In this case, they have outsourced it, which has its advantages and, again, disadvantages, right? Uh, but in this case, it sounds like it's almost like a franchise system where you can join the Sandeman tours and have their... So what they do is they get from the tour guides they pay two to three euros fee to Sunderman um as marketing fee because they did the marketing per and person. Sent the per person uh -huh. and sent the people over and then it's on their risk that they have a tour that's so nice that people give a tip higher than these two to three euros <laughs> and on one side you could think okay Sunderman could employ them and get the whole get the whole money but on the other side they uh, outsource the risk as well. So mm. they just make sure um, that people come and then or they do their best so that people come and then um, it's a risk sharing between the between Sandeman and the yeah. tour guides. So let's maybe just quickly talk about advantages and disadvantages of having outside guides, you know? Like, I mean, if I just think about it from the top of my head, The first advantage is probably that you are more, much more flexible, right? If you don't, if certain guide isn't performing well, he's just gonna leave the system because he's not gonna get or she's not gonna get enough uh, visitors or tourists, right? That's kind of a big so, advantage. So flexibility also in scaling up. So if you go to a new city, you can, there yeah. are probably tour guides already, you can bring them in and They, you can build operations and very quickly. In there. That's super important, right? That's basically the whole idea behind franchising. I mean, the reason why McDonald's and other companies have grown so fast is because they don't have to invest in their growth. You know, because somebody else pays for uh, opening a new restaurant or whatever. So what franchise also do is quality control. So that's also a big thing. How do you control the quality of these tour guides? One factor is that uh, the tour is tip based so people will only pay or stay to the end if the quality is good yeah so that's kind of a self-regulating system here yeah yeah so that's a big advantage the next one right um 
I mean, the, the next thing that comes to my mind is a disadvantage, but we can also talk about advantages further, is that obviously they keep less of the profit uh, than if they would have employed guides, right? Because now they only get two to three euros per um, per tourist that joins, right? Otherwise they would get 20 or whatever, right? Um, so that's kind of a disadvantage. But again, that's a trade-off <laughs> you have to make. Yeah, I'm thinking about other disadvantages now. Um, they probably have less control of what happens on the, yeah. the guide. So, the so the quality control we said before, what they probably give them is a is an idea of what the initial itinerary can be, so that there's some some structure to it. But then there's also a lot up to the to the guide how he does it, and um, there's no, as always, if you work with. Um, With partners, you don't have total control over what they do because mm. you meet um, you meet at the market and uh, everybody brings to the table what they yeah. use. Do you know how many locations they cover already? Um, I'm not quite sure. It should be around 20, I guess. Yeah. 10 P to 20. Cool. Did you want to add anything else to this example? Um, so I think what our takeaway can be as we discussed before, uncontested markets. So think about how can you open your offering or change your value proposition so that you find a totally different uh, group of customers that you haven't thought about before. That's something that um, is something worth thinking about. Yeah, there's a big advantage in doing that. I mean, it's really risky because you're not sure if they're willing to pay and able to pay. And that's where most companies get it wrong we just target people who don't have this problem at all so it's not that easy but if you can do it it's amazing yeah yeah okay cool the third example i have is warby parker over in europe uh, ace and tate so basically what it is it's a direct consumer um prescription glasses retailer right uh i think i have to start the story um kind of in the whole industry so the guys who started Warby Parker, who basically revolutionized this industry, they figured out that actually the reason why prescription glasses are so expensive, and uh, for those of you who don't have glasses, both me and David have them, you know that they're really expensive. You can pay up to 500 bucks for good prescription glasses. The frames are expensive, the lenses are expensive. So, uh, And the reason for that, so the founders of Warby Parker figure out is that there is one company that kind of um, owns or is just a big supplier that basically is kind of holds a monopoly in the whole industry. It's called Luxottica, and it has just a license to sell glasses for companies such as Ray-Ban, Oakley, Chanel, Prada, etc. So when you go to an ordinary uh, glasses shop, like most of the glasses there are just from one provider, from Luxottica. So that's why the prices were so high for such a long time. So what the guys from Warby Parker and now Ace and Tate, which is basically a European version of Warby Parker, have figured out is that they can sell glasses much cheaper if they go direct to consumer and if they vertically integrate. And this is kind of the, the business design part of it, which I really like. So instead of buying the frames and working with outside famous designers, they do everything internally, right? So they design the frames themselves Uh, they produce frames, they produce lenses, and this, I mean, it's pretty cheap if, if you think about it. It's, it's basically just um, 
famous, not famous, but sophisticated plastics. Uh, so um, actually, I looked it up and the own price. So basically, how much this is how much it costs the company to do it is around five to ten bucks with with prescription glasses. So they're selling these glasses for hundred bucks uh, direct to consumer online, and um, it's enough, right? It's it's uh, it's also still a huge profit margin for them. So they were able to pull it off. So the big learning for me here is, you know, if you find if you really understand how somebody's manipulating the industry, you can find ways to overcome it. But also, if you go direct to consumer, you can. Uh, offer something cheaper to the end consumers um, by um, bypassing some of the middlemen. I think that's something that comes from an understanding of the industry. So if you look into an industry and see where there might be some inefficiencies, that is always a great um, way to jump in. So also startups um, that come into 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 an industry and change or do it differently than the so the industry probably has a way that they do it for uh, decades and then as a startup you have a fresh view and can check okay is this still valid so yeah. or do we have the technology or has something changed so that we can do it differently and then this is this fresh look gives you the opportunity to do things really differently exactly so one tool that maybe you can use to analyze the industry uh, it's called porter's five forces It kind of helps you think in a structured way about the industry and really see what's happening in there and who is capturing most of the market and why. Uh, another part of this example uh, that I really like is that actually Warby Parker and most of the companies who have this strategy called direct-to-consumer, uh, they start online. It's just cheaper than having a physical space. That's that's But, one of the technologies I mean. So yeah, exactly. old companies have to run their own their whole sales organization and that costs them a lot of money and today you don't need them necessarily you can do stuff online and then yeah. you can save on like 90 percent of your sales organization here's the twist though <laughs> now what i figured out what i found online is actually warby parker has started opening a lot of physical stores so that was an interesting move for me like why why you know so it turns out that they are paying a lot to acquire a new customer it's a thing called customer acquisition cost or cac And that, that was basically so expensive that at a certain point, actually, they figured out, actually, it makes sense to open stores because they serve as a, as a point of sale, but also as a marketing um, yeah, strategy where people can learn about them and also buy online. And it's sometimes even cheaper than the online marketing. So, you know, yeah. So what they did before was proving their market so they know that people wanted their glasses and then it was safe for them to take the risk to say okay let's go out there open shops um renting renting the places and get some get some stuff for them and i think this is a really valid strategy like it makes sense for you as a startup and a new service to start online but then at a certain point when you have proven that there is a basic need for this having a physical presence is also beneficial It's just more premium also. You can basically yeah. have a deeper relationship with your customers. But you start at a place where your competitor is not so strong. So also Zalando yeah. started doing online uh, doing online fashion. Yeah. While there was there was a lot of um, other companies, 
in Germany that were also selling fashion offline and they also had online shops, but Zalando really went into, okay, we focus on the online part and we make people change their behavior to buy fashion online. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention about this example is actually that it feels to me they have uh, moved from the one industry to from the eyeglass glasses industry to the fashion industry. And actually, I I have Ace and Tate glasses. So when I was there last time, the guy working there actually told me, yeah, you know, like you can also buy, because it's so cheap, you can just buy a new glasses next year. And he, he actually told me, like, we are actually no longer in the, in the eyeglasses industry. We are in the fashion. So next year you come here, there's going to be a new uh, line and you can just choose something else. And because it's so cheap, instead of buying one glasses every five years, you can just buy new glasses every year. So by changing the product, changing the business model, they are also kind of creating this blue ocean, new market, entering the fashion industry. And they are also pushing to change customer behavior. So they want people to see it as a fashion item and also to um, get another use glasses differently. So if they buy, to, nowadays you don't buy glasses every year, but they want you to do it. Yeah. And also changing giving you the chance to change behavior with you. Yeah. The last thing about this example that I really like, and it was maybe the first thing that got me into the whole system was the home try-on. Uh, so if if you remember when I talked about that actually the glasses cost just 10 bucks. So because it's so cheap for them and because they didn't have the physical presence, they needed to give some way to customers to test their glasses, right? So what I did is they send you the glasses to your home and you can have five of them for five days and then you need to send them back. Yeah, And you need you don't need to input any credit card. You need to pay for shipping. Uh, so just basically for me, it was a really interesting example of how they... You know, the, instead of spending the money on the physical presence, they just invested it in uh, the shipping cost and also in the stolen items because I guess <laughs> somebody still has those uh, glasses. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was a really interesting twist because also as somebody who is, needs to wear glasses every day, it takes me more than five minutes in that store to really figure out if I like them or not. And by having them at home for five days, actually, it is a better experience for me because I can try them on with different outfits. Not that I'm doing that, but I could. <laughs> uh, it's just a better experience and you can see it's a better fit, I think. So I think it might also decrease their returns, you know, how, how many people did return the item at the end. It's another similarity with Zalando. They also yeah. were one of the first to have free shipping with their items. So they just sent them to you, say, try them on and if you don't like them, send them back for free to exactly. really get people into the habit of, okay, I can try on, I can buy fashion online without any risk. Mm. So I guess, I mean, there are many learnings from my side here, like taking the uh, costs. So by changing your business model, you can take certain costs and turn it into a better experience. Like I'm not investing in a physical store, so I'm going to give you the home try, uh, home try on, I think it's called. Um, yeah, by creating a new product, changing the price, you could also be entering a new industry. If you try to change the behavior of customers um, by understanding industry, you can really see how you can change the whole product. Uh, and uh, there was something more 
Um, yeah, and also at certain point, if the cost of acquisition is too high online, there is also a benefit of adding the physical presence. So I think there, this is a good example that a business model has a lot of different um, parts and they yeah. somehow have to work together seamlessly. So exactly. if you change one part of it, you probably have to change two or three more. So it's not... It's a system. So a business model is basically a system of different parts that you have to look at and make sure that they work together. And what I like to say is that business model is actually the ex user experience. Because if you change a certain part of the business model, like a channel or a price, the user experience is completely different. So, so for example, when I'm subscribing to Wenmoff, because the business model is different, the user experience is completely different. And I think a lot of designers are still thinking about the features as being the experience part. By changing, actually, the business model is actually also the user experience. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a great point where <laughs> also that's, end that's this some discussion. good last words, I guess. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Unless you have anything else to add. No, just uh, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. We might repeat that. So with that, we are concluding the first business design gem. We covered six examples. Um, yeah, as I said earlier, this is an experiment. Please let us know if this was fun, if you find it helpful. Um, if you have any suggestions for changing, maybe just reach out on, like I said, Twitter, email, LinkedIn, wherever you're using to stay subscribed to us. And yeah, um, have a nice day. Bye. And that's the first ever business design jam, the world's premiere. Um, so as a designer, I'm obviously very interested in the feedback, uh, especially if you guys find this uh, interesting and even more so if you find it useful. Uh, so you can reach me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or just via email if you're subscribed on the website. And just let me know like, if you like this format and also if you have any suggestions for guests, etc. Which also brings me to the topic of the podcast ratings. I know that every podcast host asks for ratings and the reason is it's really important especially when we try to uh, invite new guests and show them that uh, you know it makes sense for them to take the time and to share their thoughts with us it's easier when you have uh, more ratings by showing they actually have also more listeners so I would really appreciate if you have the time Uh, even right now when you're listening to me just head to any of the podcasts wherever you listen to this uh, podcast and just write something uh, it would really help me a lot yeah that's all in this episode and have a very nice day bye bye <laughs>